All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, so while Stuart is still kind of taking a break in the month of January, uh, we are cruising along in our, our sort of doctrines of Scripture, uh, various topics concerning you know the Bible itself, rather than a you know a book of the Bible or theology or something like that. So this week, uh, the plan originally was to talk about the apocrypha. And we'll talk about what the apocrypha is here in a few minutes. Um, and just very quickly, it's that kind of that list of books that the, the Catholics have in their Bible that we don't have in our Bible. And so we're going to kind of talk about why that is here, here in a few minutes. But when I was going through the lesson, I realized that I was, I was referring to a whole bunch of different things that I was going to have to explain as I, as I went along. And so what I realized was that, you know what, let's just, before we even get started, let's just go through a bunch of different categories of writings um, from the ancient world. Um, there's actually 10 of them, 10 different categories that we'll go through. Um, we're probably going to miss a bunch. <laughs> um, but if you have any, like at the, at the end, if like you think I missed any or anything like that, just let, let me know, kind of speak up, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, as we're going along, I, you know, I normally put cues in here for questions and that sort of, sort of thing. Um, I haven't done that, but if you guys have any questions um, or comments as we're going along, then uh, feel, free to, uh, feel free to speak up. So let's pray, then we'll get started. Once again, Father, we thank you um, for this time to come together uh, today, uh, not so much to examine your word, um, but to understand uh, kind of the context of your word and what you, what you have given us. Father, um, I just ask that this time is profitable, and it's not just merely used as, as plain information, but in some way, shape, or form, it is used uh, to glorify, glorify you, whether that be through evangelism or apologetics or just strengthening, strengthening our, our own faith. Uh, we love you, we trust you, and just help us to glorify you in everything that we do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. Um, so the Old Testament canon, it's, uh, you know, 39 books. Uh, inspired Jewish writings. They're written in mostly Hebrew, but there's a little bit of, of Aramaic. And as we know, that there, you know, there's various authors. In terms of uh, when it was written, it was written by and large from 1400 BC through about 400 BC. Um, Job might have been a little bit before that, because 1400 BC would be, um, you know, the time of Moses. That would be, you know, essentially they're getting ready to go into the, the promised land. Um, that's when, you know, the Pentateuch or the Mosaic books or whatever you want to call them, the Torah, um, was put together. And, and again, we think Job was probably before that, maybe during the patriarchal period, but we're not exactly sure when. And then in terms of the canon being recognized, you know, when kind of everything was brought together and we had all of the books, um, we don't have a real good date for that, um, but suffice it to say for our purposes that by the time of Christ, the canon was, was recognized. Okay. All right. So that was the easy one. Now we have the Septuagint. Uh, so the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Who can tell me basically what the word Septuagint means? Seventy, exactly, exactly, yep, seventy. And it comes from the fact that, um, well, it, com it comes from the story that it was translated by 72 
scholars in Alexandria, Alexandria, Egypt. Um, Alexandria, Egypt. So 72 scholars came together. They kind of rounded down to 70, and they translated um, the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament into, into Greek. Um, whether or not there was actually 72, I don't think we really know, because one of the legends says that it was um, six, six scholars um, from each tribe. So what's wrong with that? Again, if this is 3rd century B.C., we got, a, we got like 10 lost tribes, right? So um, that would, I think that would be kind of a hard thing to pull off. So anyway, it was written about 3rd century B.C., uh, give or take, and then uh, most of the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament actually appear to come from the Septuagint rather than the, the Hebrew text itself. Okay, so the idea there was... so. Let me back up. What would be the motivation for doing a translation of the entire Old Testament, or I'm sorry, yeah, the entire Old Testament into Greek from Hebrew? What would be the motivation for something like that? Yes, sir. Hellenization. Hellenization. What does that mean? Alexander the Great conquers all of the known Persian world, and Greek becomes the, the normal language everybody's speaking. Exactly. Greek becomes, I hate this phrase, but the Greek becomes the lingua franca, right? Yeah, so the Greek, uh, with Alexander the Great, Everybody began speaking Greek. And so um, very few people actually um, understood Hebrew. And so it's kind of similar to uh, the Catholics teaching uh, or doing mass in Latin where nobody understood it. Okay? And eventually it went into the, the different language of, of uh, you know, the local language basically. And so that would be the motivation for the Septuagint. And then it appears that... Um, you know, the New Testament authors, um, you know, use that as opposed to the Hebrew text um, most of the time. The Apocrypha, um, the second, roughly the second half of the class, we're going to kind of drill down on the Apocrypha. Um, but these are, te- the. Uh, well, let me ask you a question. What does Apocrypha mean? What does the word mean? Hidden means hidden, something that was hidden and then um, you know kind of kind of revealed. And so these would be you know kind of quote unquote you know hidden books. Um, so anyway, there were texts riff, written roughly from about 400 BC um, to more or less 1 AD, probably a little bit before that, but um, uh, more or less those times. They were written in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, authors, um, various, there were various authors. Uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure if we know who wrote it, necessarily know who wrote any of them. Um, but then I've got this really fancy word there. It's worth at least 50 cents if you use it today. And it's pseudepigraphal. Who can tell me what a pseudepigrapha is? What does pseudepigrapha mean? Stephen? Uh, I mean, written in the name of somebody else. Right. So it's a false writing. That doesn't mean that the writing itself is false, but it means the authorship is, is false. So it's written in somebody else's name. So if I wrote, um, you know, the autobiography of Russ Parkin, you know, clearly that would be a pseudepigrapha um, because Russ didn't write it, I wrote it. And I, I'm attribu- attributing it to him. Uh, Catholics use the term deuterocanonical, which means second canon. Um, 
And so just by using that word deutero, that second canon, kind of tells you that, you know, there's something going on with these books that they're, we don't think they're inspired. Um, I think clearly they're, they're not. So anyway, but nevertheless, some of the texts are profitable for Christians to read. Um, and some of them are mystical. And I think there's even a little bit of pagan influence in some, some parts of them. Uh, the, the reason I say, so if they're not scripture, then why would they say, I say that they, they may be profitable to read? Historical. Historical. Historical, right? There's some, um, we can begin to, yes, ma'am. Hannah? At great. It, um, so what Hannah said is that it allows us to uh, understood more or less the way that they thought, uh, the Jews thought in during the intertestamental period, between the, the period between the Old and the, and the New Testaments. Um, very good. So they're not scripture, but they can give us insight into the ancient world. So I, th- I think that they are profitable. Um, one of the other quick quick notes is, you know, this summer, I think I mentioned it last week, I'm going to do a class over the summer on the intertestamental period, which was just mentioned. And so um, the idea there is, you know, when you look at Malachi and then flip the page and there's an empty, empty page and then you get into Matthew, well, a lot went on during that empty page, okay? A lot went on. You know, because at the close of the Old Testament, who was the big empire? Who was the big baddie that was um, kind of over over the the Jews? Which empire? Oh, at the the close of close of the Old Testament, Persia, the Persians, and then when you open the New Testament, it's all of a sudden where these Romans come from, right? Well, then we're also missing an empire in between. Who are we missing? The Greeks. Okay, so there's a whole like kind of Greeks ruling for a while and before the Romans did, okay? And then also there's, um, you know, you know, how many times are Pharisees or Sadducees brought up in the Old Testament? Zero, okay? So where did they come from? So it's, it's really valuable to study the intertestamental period because it's kind of an introduction to the New Testament. It helps us to understand the Gospels just, uh, just that much more. Um, and so reading... The Apocrypha is kind of a part of understanding, understanding that world. Uh, we have to be very careful, though, because there's some really weird stuff there. All right. Dead Sea Scrolls. I would say who's heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but clearly everybody has. Um, so these are Jewish texts found in um, a group of caves in Qumran near what sea? The Dead Sea. Very good. Um, they're written in you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and written more or less the same time as, as the Apocrypha. Um, but they were discovered um, in years between 1946 and 1956. And so somebody discovered the first cave, and they kept looking, and for 10 years they kept finding caves. Uh, so these were you know, books, um, not only Old Testament books, but also some apocryphal books, Commentaries, community rules, ritual instruction, um, all, all sorts of things. Um, so there was a whole community that, uh, you know, 
I think the thought is when, you know, maybe the Romans were coming in, they, they um, kind of put these scrolls away in clay jars and things like that in order to, for them to uh, survive. And they, they hid them away. And it's really cool because 2,000 years later, we open them up and we find all kinds of, kinds of good stuff there. So that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right, am I going too fast? Everybody, everybody so far so good? Yeah. I wanted to mention these guys. Um, I'll just call them other you know, Jewish writers. We have Philo, um, or Philo, um, thing I guess of whether or not you've had Greek. Um, Jewish philosopher, he's a Jewish philosopher of the first century B.C. Um, he's very, I, in my opinion, Philo is really more of a uh, platonic or uh, following in the steps of Plato, um, philosopher with some Jewish influence, more so than he is like a legit Jew who was just influenced by, um, by Plato. But anyway, he's a Jewish philosopher of the, of the first century B.C. And then Josephus was a historian of the first century A.D. So, um, so these are two guys, uh, Philo and Josephus, that you'll see from time to time um, in terms of writing. And I just want to put them in context here. All right? Then we have the New Testament canon. Um, of course, they're inspired Christian writings uh, written in Greek. Um, I say authors, apostles, and then I put a little asterisk there. Why would I put that asterisk there? What's that? Hebrews, Hebrews exactly. It's, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. A lot of people will say Paul, but um, uh, we don't know that it was Paul. Um, going, I think, back to the second century, they were even acknowledging that they didn't know who wrote, who wrote Hebrews. Um, we also have um, the Gospel of Mark, which, you know, Mark wasn't a, wasn't a disciple. He wasn't an apostle, but his companion was Peter, or he was companion, or Peter's companion, I should say. And so you can almost think of the Gospel of Mark, at least I believe, as um, the Gospel of um, Peter, not the heretical Gospel, Gnostic Gospel um, that we talked about last week, but like a legit Gospel of Peter. So these would have been written around 45 AD, you know, 12 years after um, the resurrection to about 90 AD. And um, the Apostle John would have been the last um, written the stuff at the end. Um, This is a surprise to a lot of people, I think, but the oldest known listing of the New Testament canon was actually in 367 AD. So prior to that, there had been various, you know, listings and things like that that we've, we've seen. Um, but the first time, first list that we have where all the New Testament books are together and only those New Testament books was actually 367 AD. Okay. And I'll tell you, it had nothing to do with Constantine. But. All right, early church fathers. Um, these are early Christians, especially that first generation after the apostles, the ones that actually knew the apostles, we call them the apostolic fathers. But I wanted to kind of group them all in together as early church fathers. They were uh, Christian writings of the early church. They wrote mostly in Greek, and then then there was some Latin. Um, Once you got, I think, second century, I think. Um, Various authors, of course, and then, you know, gave a hundred years or so in there. Um, Of course, we've we've had Christian writings ever since... um, ever since the time of Christ. but um, So some of these writings 
were considered to be a part of the New Testament by some people. And so you probably, you know, you may have heard of the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, you may have heard of the Didache. The Shepherd of Hermas is uh, what's called an apocalypse. It reads a lot like uh, the Revelation found in, you know, the, the last book of the Bible. Uh, it's an apocalypse, lots of visions, difficult to interpret, that sort of thing. The Didache is like instruction for, for holy, holy living. And so these were passed around and, and very highly um, thought of um, in the, you know, second century. Um, and some people considered them to be inspired, but ultimately um, it was recognized that, the, that they weren't, and I think for good reason. Um, and then other ones would be Ignatius, Polycarp, Clement of Rome. These were folks that actually knew the apostles, uh, or at least you know, one of the apostles, and then they were kind of the next generation. And these guys are really good to read. Um, I, uh, Tom, where, where are you sitting? Oh, there you are. Um, yeah, you've read several of them, and I think you think they're profitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very inspiring, too. Now, oh, sorry, wrong one. Um, thought this was another slide. So then we have the Gnostic writings. Um, a lot of times this is actually what's called the pseudepigrapha, but I think that um, the false writings, because, you know, most of them are around this time, but also parts of the Apocrypha are considered false writings as, as well. Um, but these are miscellaneous writings that seek to Gnostify Jesus. I just made up my own word, Gnostify. Um, and so, uh, and it's official too, because I added it to my dictionary in Microsoft Word. But um, anyway, they, what they did is, is um, Gnosticism, like we talked about last week, is a radically different religion than Judaism. Um, it teaches a whole different creation narrative. It teaches a whole different way of salvation. I mean, everything is different. Um, so I'm not gonna, we talked about it last week, so I'm not going to go into it too much this week. Um, and, but as we've talked about many, many times, everybody wants Jesus. They just don't want the Jesus of the Bible. And so a lot of these Gnostics, what they did was they took Jesus and then put, it in, made him into, put him into their Gnostic context. And what you wind up with is heresy. Um, several different... Um, heresies and blasphemies and, and things of that nature. So anyway, language, Greek, Coptic, um, several other languages. Um, some of them I've never even heard of, to be quite honest. Authors, various, and I, I'm not sure that we actually know who wrote any of them. And then uh, they generally be about 150 AD to 300 AD. This includes the so-called Gospels of Thomas, Judas, Peter, Mary, etc. There's a whole bunch. Can you guys read that? Yeah, okay. I can't read that, but I can read that. So, um, I was thinking, how many books are actually in the pseudepigrapha? How many would be considered in the pseudepigrapha? So, I was looking for that on, on the interwebs, you know, where everything is true. And I came across pseudepigrapha.com. And they've got a... Um, Listing, I'm thinking there's probably 150 or so um, documents or texts that are, are listed in pseudepigrapha.com. They have these different categories. And what caught my attention, and 
ticked me off, quite honestly, is you can see, you know, four rows down, they got this category called Lost Books of the Bible. Okay? And then within that, they've got the Gospel of the Birth of Mary, um, you know, several <laughs> others, bless you. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which we talked about last week. Um, you know, several of these that are, you know, were they lost? I don't think they were lost. I think they were tossed because everybody knew that they were garbage. Um, but what he does in that same category, if you go down to, I don't know, near the bottom, you've got like um, the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians and the second epistle of Clement to the Corinthians. And at the bottom, you've got Ignatius to the Ephesians and to the Magnesians. And so what they're trying to say is those were lost books of the Bible. And it, th- those have been, those have never been lost. We've got, I mean, those have been taught and read and studied by scholars for 2,000 years. Um, you know, so what they're doing is they're just basically saying there's this narrative that they have around the beginning of Christianity, and the, be, the key word in this narrative is diversity. You know, diversity, it's the, it's the thing that everybody talks about these days. And so what they're trying to say is early Christianity was very diverse, and what we have today is essentially uh, the victors um, winning out, becoming the most powerful, and then... <clears throat> and then um, oppressing, which is another key word, everybody else and getting rid of their writings and persecuting them, okay? And that is just objectively false. But it's a narrative that really, it, it, it's gotten a lot of, tra- of traction with various secular, it's a weird, secular biblical scholars. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, when you run, this is one of the reasons why um, I'm kind of going through this whole thing right now is because you have to recognize, you have to understand what it is that you're looking at. And, you know, just because a scholar says, hey, this book was venerated back 2,000 years ago doesn't mean it really was. That makes sense? Yeah, okay. Sorry, I'm really, really passionate about that. Um, we have a Jewish collection of writings called the Talmud. The Talmud is broken up into two sections. We have the Mishnah, um, and then the Gemara, the Mishnah was written, um, it was the oral, uh, rabbinic oral tradition that they actually wrote down. They did this around 200 AD. Um, why, would, why would all of a sudden around that time they need to write things down that had always been oral before? What happened in the late first century to Jerusalem? Romans came in, right? They lost their temple, right? And we had what's called the diaspora, right? The Jews kind of, kind of went everywhere. And, um, and so all of a sudden, you didn't have this, a real robust network or community of rabbis that could kind of keep this tradition going and keep it in check and make it reliable. So around 200 BC, I'm sorry, that says BC. Those should be AD. Got that wrong. That should be AD. Um, they, uh, they decided they needed to put them together for, for posterity, right? And so the Gemara is commentaries on that. So I need to get moving a little bit faster, sorry. And then finally, the last one is the Latin Vulgate. 
for the Latin Vulgate. It's the Latin translation of the whole Bible plus some apocryphal books. Obviously, it was written in Latin. It was written by um, Jerome, um, with a handful of exceptions. And then he did it around 400 AD. And it was adopted as the official Catholic Bible at Trent in 1546. All right. So, sorry, that was a lot of information. It had to be like drinking through a fire hose. Um, any questions? No? Okay. By the way, when I grab my coffee and say, are there any questions, I'm really wanting to take a, take a drink. And so, somebody ask a question. Uh, all right, so the Apocrypha. All right. Yes? Yes. I think it depend, probably depends on the Catholic that you ask, because the last one I had a lot of interactions with was like, oh, Catholicism is a monolithic religion, everybody's on the same sheet of music all around the world. And I'm like, well, you need to go to Latin America and see what they do versus what they do in, say, Germany or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they have um, Old Testament, New Testament, and uh, an Apocrypha. Is, they don't call it the Apocrypha. They're actually insulted when you call it that. That's why I call it that. But um, they call it the deuterocanonical books. And I'm not 100% sure they really distinguish. You know, so. so what is the Apocrypha? Um, it's a collection of documents written mostly in Greek during the last few centuries B.C., <coughs> They're included in the Latin Vulgate and our oldest copies of the Septuagint. Um, remember, do I go into this later? I think it, well, let me just talk about this real quick. So I put an asterisk near oldest copies of the Septuagint. So let's think about the Septuagint for, for a minute. Let's say first century. Well, you know what? I am going into this in a minute, so sorry. Let me park that. Um, and by the way, the LXX, if you haven't picked that up yet, that's Roman numerals for 70. So a lot of people use LXX for the Septuagint. So some of them are accepted as inspired scripture by the Roman Catholic and or Eastern Orthodox churches. So they're included in their Old Testament canon. And Jews and Protestants reject them as scripture, but generally agree, that's probably stretching it, but many Protestants agree that they're profitable for study. Okay, so here are all the books. And in reality, we can't talk about one apocrypha. There's more like apocryphy because there's different collections. Um, so you can see we have the book in the first column, then the, whether it's in the Roman Catholic canon, Greek Orthodox canon, or some Protestant canons. When I say Protestant, um, the Anglicans tend to use it sometimes. And then there's like Ethiopian... I think Ethiopian Orthodox churches and some of these small esoteric communities um, like in Northern Africa and stuff, they seem to kind of do their own thing. They don't really fit in any, any good category. Um, as you can see, there's various, uh, like Tobit is a narrative that talks about a, um, a young man going on a, on a journey, basically. Um, you know, there's additions to Esther, 
and then you can see down, you have Baruch. Who is Baruch in the Old Testament? The guy that dragon? No. It was Bell, yeah. There you go, Jeremiah. Yeah, he was Jeremiah's scribe, and he probably wrote the last chapter of, of the book of Jeremiah. Um, and then you have additions to D- Daniel. Um, so you can kind of see a little bit of a, uh, a trend where it's like, okay, you have a biblical book, you know, a, you have actually inspired scripture, and then they kind of add to it, you know. Um, you got Psalm 151 down there, and then Ezra's, um, I think, are allegedly, I haven't actually read them, but I think they're actually supposed to be like additional Ezra books. Um, and then going up a little bit, you have First and Second Maccabees um, are, I think Hannah asked me a little bit earlier what my favorite one was, and I, I think probably First or Second Maccabees, um, because, you know, they talk about Judas Maccabeus and the Hasmoneans and stuff like that, and they're, they're pretty interesting to read to kind of see how the Jews and the Romans kind of interacted. Um, but third and fourth Maccabees just gets a little weird. And so some of these are really weird. Some of them are, um, like I said, profitable for, for study. All right. There we go. So if you're talking to a Catholic, um, they're going to make arguments. One of the arguments they'll make, they'll make a claim. Okay. It was included, the, uh, the Apocrypha was included in the Septuagint. Not only is that the Bible that Jesus carried, it's the source of most New Testament quotes of the Old Testament. Okay? And so why include the Apocrypha in the canon? Well, because it was in the Bible that Jesus carried. Now, how would you respond to something like that? Okay. Okay. Well, we know because most of the New Testament quotes um, uh, in the Old, uh, I'm sorry, most New Testament quotes of the Old Testament uh, came from the Septuagint. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think we're really far in the New Testament where I think it's Paul. Mm-hmm. It's like a Latin poet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we would consider that secular Latin poet to be canonical. Okay, good. There's a lot of weird and nasty things. Yeah. Good, very good. And the book of Enoch is also uh, quoted in, in, in Jude. And so, yeah, good answer. Um, so... It's also just kind of incorrect. You just read the Hebrew scripture whenever you did read. Okay. Like, the few times we see him reading scripture, it's in synagogues. Okay. Hebrew, and people didn't carry around Bibles back then. So we're hard to come by. Okay, okay. You're stealing my thunder, but cool. No, <laughs> no, no, that's good, good. No, you're, you are... I think you're nailing it. So we don't really know if it was originally, to begin with, there's lots of reasons, but to begin with, we don't really know if it was originally included in the Septuagint. The Septuagint was originally a collection of scrolls. So it's not like, you know, Jesus is walking around with his, you know, ESV version of, of the Septuagint or anything. No, it was, a, it was a bunch of scrolls. And these scrolls were, like uh, Stephen said, you know, generally in the, in the synagogues. The three oldest copies of, that we have, uh, and most complete copies of the Septuagint that we have, they completely agree on the Hebrew Old Testament, but they don't agree at all on the Apocrypha. Here's what I mean. Those 
three collections, um, if I remember correctly, there are Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Um, I may have one of those off, but I think it's those three. Um, all three of them had in, included in their, in, in, their, um, in their Septuagint, they had 38 out of 39 Old Testament books. Now, which one would they have left out? Esther, exactly. Esther is the one that was not in any of the Septuagint, um, uh, Septuagint collections. Okay? Now, each of them also had some apocryphal books, but there were no apocryphal books where all three of those collections had that book. Does it make sense? And they all had, had different apocryphal books. So clearly, they are not, you know, it stands to reason that they are not viewed with the same um, confidence and the same level as, as Old Testament, um, the Old Testament canon. Here's some other additional arguments that are necessarily um, convincing, but I think they contribute. Philo of Alexandria, we just talked about him a few minutes ago, uh, quotes extens- extensively from the Septuagint, but he never quotes the Apocrypha. And Josephus never quoted the Apocrypha either. Besides that, Jesus didn't carry a Bible. He referenced scrolls that were kept in the synagogues. Some may have been Hebrew, some may have been Greek. He never quotes the Apocrypha. True, roughly 70% of the New Testament quotes come from the Septuagint, but not one is directly from the Apocrypha. But even if it did quote the Apocrypha, I left a floating dependent clause there. Like Hannah said, that doesn't make it Scripture. Okay? Um, because exactly like she said, there were Greek prophets in Acts 17, I'm sorry, Greek poets in Acts 17 that were quoted, um, and that doesn't make them inspired prophets. Yes, sir? Oh, hey, Sharon. It, that's a great question. It's not, um, it's not in the Apocrypha. Um, it was a, another Jewish writing um, that I don't think anybody really thought was, was Scripture. But what it do, does, by the fact that Jude quotes it, there were people that, that held it in high regard. Just I, I think the community, neither the Jews nor the Christians ever, ever really thought of it as, as Scripture. So here's another claim. The Apocrypha was found among the books of the Dead Sea Scrolls. How do you respond to that? There were quite a few other books. What's that? There were quite a few others. Exactly. Dead Sea Scrolls wasn't like, hey, here's my, you know, here's the canon. There were many non-canonical canonical books uh, found at Qumran. There's commentaries, hymn, you know, all sorts of stuff. Book of Enoch. There's a... uh, there's that one popping up again. Fragments of Melchizedek. I just threw some random ones out there. Okay. Many church fathers, here's another claim, many church fathers quoted from the Apocrypha. What do you do with that? There you go, exactly. Um, quoting from a source does not automatically make it scripture. Paul quoted a rather, hey, that one popped up again. Um, I've quoted from Calvin's works. Does that make this institute scripture? 
No, I missed by that much, but yeah, it's, it's not scripture. Um, so, in a classroom setting, these seem like softballs, don't they? But when you're sitting across from somebody who is ob- making objections, you know, then it's not always that easy. It's not always that easy to respond. And, you know, part of my point in all of this is think. You know, when, you're, when somebody makes an objection, think, think about what they're saying and think about whether or not it actually makes sense, right? A lot of these, I'm not really telling you anything that you didn't already know. But as we're talking to people, be it, you know, arm wrestling over the Apocrypha, whether or not it should be in, in the canon with Catholics, or talking to um, some college professor who thinks that, you know, the Gnostic Gospels belong in the New Testament canon. I had a, uh, our previous church, um, I was teaching the college students one, um, one Sunday, I guess, and uh, I just asked for objections to, to Christianity. You know, what kind of apologetics problems do you run into uh, when you're kind of interacting with the world? And one of the uh, young ladies, she said um, that her professor went off on this thing and talked about how the Gospel of Thomas should be in uh, the New Testament canon because it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, and my head started spinning at that point because I'm like, okay, well, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls were buried before the New Testament was written. Second of all, the Gospel of Thomas was found in Nag Hammadi, Egypt, not Qumran, you know, up in the the Holy Land. I mean, there were so many things wrong with what he said, but he said this in class. And it seems like she didn't misunderstand him. He actually said this sort of thing. And so what happens is when you can have a perfectly legitimate scholar, academic, very intelligent person, that when they start talking about Christianity, like legit stuff, you know, dealing with the Bible, bibliology, whatever, they lose their minds. And all of a sudden, they're ready to quote the Da Vinci Code as, you know, some kind of authoritative source. So, all right. So why include the Apocrypha? One more. Luther was the one who took away from the books of Scripture because he didn't agree with them. Okay. Well, Martin Luther merely voiced the same opinion of the Apocrypha that many Christians had for centuries. The Apocrypha is profitable for reading. It's just not on par with with Scripture. Okay. So why should we exclude the Apocrypha? So, so far so good? Yes, ma'am. I have a question. So in conversing about Martin Luther and Mm -hmm. the Apocrypha, Yeah. From the apocalypse, how would you interact with that? He, it, he didn't. <laughs> it didn't work. He did have problems with James. Um, to what extent he actually tried to get it removed from the New Testament, I, I don't know how far it went, but um, one man doesn't, de- well, first of all, no man determines the, the canon. Um, we recognize the canon, but it's recognized, um, recognized as inspired by community and not organization, not an official church, but, you know, God's people, Jesus's 
sheep hear his voice. And so we hear his voice in, you know, um, in scripture. We don't hear it in, you know, other, other works. Were you going to say something, Stephen? Yeah. Martin Luther was, was prone to pull out the handle and he made the comment about James and with the full straw while he was having an argument over what to do with this stone. Mm-hmm. It's not like a real, like, I'm trying to get James out of the Bible. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, well, good. And did you guys hear that back there? Yeah, okay, cool. Yes, sir? I just wondered, can you turn this argument around at some point so the Catholic Church being a normal ideological sect have it? Yeah, that's a great point. 1546, Council of Trent, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that, um, you know, the, the, the Apocrypha, I mean, many things that didn't really, weren't officially recognized or codified until, until Trent. So, yeah, I agree. So for 1,500 years, you know, we were just float, floating along, I guess. All right. So why exclude the Apocrypha? So this, this is where we kind of come back at them a little bit. So the earliest Christian listing of the OT books is from Melito, Bishop of Sardis, circa 170 AD. The Apocrypha was not, was not included. So we have this. Um, now it can be, you can kind of see that going both ways. This isn't necessarily a compelling argument, but it's just supporting. Jerome himself didn't even want to include the Apocrypha in the Latin Vulgate. Um, now, Catholics will disagree with you on this one, but um, I do think history's on our side. Do you have any insight into that? No? Okay. Uh, and then Origen, which I can't believe I put the word, I'm, I'm not an Origen fan, but we'll go with Athanasius and then Pope Gregory, a Pope, uh, William, and William of Ockham, along with many others, rejected at least a portion of the Apocrypha. We even had a Pope reject part of it. Then you can actually read it. And so here's 1 Maccabees chapter 9. It says, There was great distress in Israel, such as not, has not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Now, what's the problem here? When did the prophets cease to appear? Before or after this was written? before, right? So, who writes inspired scripture? Prophet. So, prophets cease to appear and then you get into the apocryphal times. So, Maccabees, it's basically, you know, the guy, um, I'm sorry, guy, you know, whoever wrote this, um, is he's not pretending to write inspired scripture. He's just saying the prophet ceased to appear. And we don't, we don't have prophets now, and there was great distress. Uh, so let's, you got to think on this one, too. What's wrong with this picture? Tobit 6. Um, the angel said to him, Take out the entrails of this fish and lay up his heart and his gall and his liver for thee, for these are necessary for useful medicines. And when he had done so, he roasted the flesh thereof. Then Tobias said to him, Tell me what remedies are these things good for? And the angel said to him, If thou put a little piece of its heart upon coals and smoke thereupon, thereof drives away all kind of devils, either from man or from woman, so that they come no more to them. Come on, Tom, talk to me. Well, it seems to be nothing in the metal divine realm. 
Meta Divine Realm, yeah. And, and tell me about that. Yeah, so who buys into that? The pagans, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a magic, you know, think of it as magic incantation, that sort of thing. Potions, that sort of stuff. Um, what's funny is, uh, so when we talked about creation and we talked about kind of the idea of magic and the meta-divine realm, and if you guys don't remember that, I'm, I'm sorry, but um, so... Every time Tom would go like watch a Marvel Marvel movie, he would come back and say, "Hey, they had the Meta Divine Realm. Do you see how they were doing the magic?" And said, "It was very pagan." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I agree." Um, sorry, just side note. Okay, what's wrong with this? You guys, you guys should be able to nail this one. Uh, water puts out a blazing fire. Almsgiving expiates sins. There you go. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, giving to the poor uh, expiates sins. So, nope. Grace through faith in Christ. It's also taught in Tobit 12. Uh, let's see. I think this is the last one. Um, I'll skip through most of it. If you go about four, four lines up, um, starts, uh, and because he considered that those who had fallen asleep, i.e., they were dead, um, fallen asleep with godliness, had great um, grace laid upon for them. Um, I'm sorry. Had great grace laid up for them. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins. What's wrong with that? How many times do you die? It violates Scripture. Scripture tells you that, you know, man is destined to die once and face judgment. There you go. You know, once you've died, the story's over. Mm-hmm. Praying for the dead is heretical. Right. So, um, so this is would be an argument for what? And if, if you believe this, an argument for what? What's that? Purgatory, Purgatory exactly. Um, yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Um, it, it, see, and that's a big chunk of the distinctive between Catholicism and, and the Reformed faith is that the, a lot of the distinctions do come from their doctrine, which is based on the Apocrypha. It's not based on Scripture. So, um, conclusions. The books of the Apocrypha were never fully considered canon until the Council of Trent. They were always in question. The books contain various problematic concepts like magic, work salvation, and praying for the dead. Even though they are not canon, there is some value in reading them. Not necessarily all of them. I mean, 1st, 2nd Maccabees would be good to read. Tobit was interesting. Judith, um, there's a handful. Um, the extensions of, of Daniel, getting the bell and the dragon and stuff like that, uh, they get kind of weird, but if you're bored one night, you know, don't read Netflix, read the Apocrypha. Um, there we go. The best way to know that they don't belong in the canyon is to read them. All right? Cool. Well, um, I know, again, I know there was a lot of information. Um, any questions or thoughts or anything? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. 
Oh, Judas Maccabeus. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, the, the Nag Hammadi library was a, um, a collection of scroll of, uh, I think papyri, if I remember correctly, um, found in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. And that's where like, say the gospel of Thomas, um, came, came from. So, um, that wouldn't be apoc- apocrypha. It would be, you know, more New Testament heresy. So, um, or Christian era. Her, her, um, heresy, I should say. Now, next week, uh, you know, I'm thinking we will get into formation of the canon, and then we can... We, no, we already talked about the Gnostic Gospels, didn't we? Yeah, we talked about that last week. So, formation of the canon and things around that. Uh, somebody had their hand. Yes, sir. Um, what about the Right. 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 The the view would be that the Holy Spirit um, did not superintend their um, uh, their not not survive preservation through through the ages. Um, if you noticed on the uh, pseudepigrapha.com that screenshot that I, I put up there. There is a one that says Paul's letter to the um, Laodiceans. Um, I don't think anybody believes that that's actually, um, you know, actually Paul's letter. It's probably, a again, a pseudepigrapha written by somebody else, kind of trying to fill in a gap. Um, but even if we found, like, the two um, letters to the Corinthians from Paul, or even if we found a letter to the Laodiceans and we thought, yeah, Paul actually wrote this, you know, they wouldn't be in our canon um, because it's it's one of those things where, um, you know, we say the canon is closed and the the Holy Spirit did not superintend those for His church for two thousand years. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Okay, cool. Randy, can you close us?